Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. Thank goodness uh, NBC gave us a lot of clothing, including these huge puffy coats that went down to our knees. Mesdames et messieurs. The greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympic fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? Hello, hello. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm great. I am great. Today we are going back to Pyeongchang to take a look at the games from a different perspective. And we are talking with Sean Callahan, who is a video journalist with the NBC Boston station which is local to me and uh sean got lucky to go to the games and this was actually his second games he also went to salt lake city when he was 19 years old to cover the games there and sean took some time with us and told us what it was like covering the games from the cameraman's perspective take a listen to our great conversation how did you get the olympics gig i'm an olympic junkie I, I've liked the Olympics. I've liked watching the Olympics. Uh, I'm a winter sports fan. I, you know, I'm a big skier. And so when I was in, you know, that's how kind of I, I worked in 2002. I'm like, I need to work at the Olympics. It's in the United States. This is my chance. And Were so you 12 I... when you went? You... <laughs> <laughs> no, but if I send you a picture of me at the Olympics, I probably do look 12. Because you know? <laughs> honestly, you, you don't look old enough to yes, have gone to 2002. I was, uh, how old was I in 2002? 19 years old? Okay, okay, wow, okay. But I did look even younger (laughs) than that, so. So that must have been like a huge get at 19. Oh, I was, I was stoked. It was, it was great. And I, I, you know, I had to take a semester off of college to do it, but I was just like, I want to do this and this is my shot and I made it happen. We, We will get back to Salt Lake City. What what happens? Like, does the call go out? Hey, who wants to go? Or do you have to like put your name in the hat? Or what? what I'm do- one of these people that if you don't ask, you don't get it. Um, so as soon as I found out um, 
we recently became the NBC affiliate in Boston. And so as soon as that happened at my annual review, I'm talking to my manager. I'm like, yeah, so the Olympics are coming up. And I worked in 2002 in Salt Lake and I want to go. <laughs> and so, and I, you know, over the years proved myself to the management and they trusted me and, you know. How long before the Olympics did you find out? Well, I kind of found out by an email. It was, my management has never told me. It was, I got an email from the NBC Olympics um, travel saying, here's your flights to Korea. <laughs> and so I go to my manager, I'm like, so does this mean I'm working at the Olympics? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> um, so it was probably, I want to say late summer. Yeah, late summer, early fall. So you you were working for... NBC rather than the local affiliate. No, how, I, how does that actually? I was working out? for the local affiliate, but NBC, okay. but our, our local station in Boston is actually owned by NBC. Okay. So what's what's called in like an owned and operated station. So what, the affiliate, but our management, you know, when you go up, up and up and up is, is NBC. Okay. So it, it's so interesting to hear how long in advance they have to plan all this stuff. So, so NBC, Olympics did all your travel arrangements and all of that kind oh, of yeah, stuff yeah. for you. And, and yeah, it was amazing the support and you know the planning on the, I mean the, on their end that just made us not have to worry about it. Oh it's gosh, like, here's your flights, here's your bus to the accommodations, here's the accommodations, here's your workspace, here's this 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 and this, here's your work permit, here's all this. So. Oh, that's okay. So you had to have a work permit as well. well it, actually, our credential actually, well, it was a work visa and basically okay. our credential, we had to activate it at the airport before going through customs because that was our work visa for the month. That's really interesting. So you got your stuff, your, you got your flights and, and ticket information way in advance. What did you have to do to prepare? Um, we had the options of shipping equipment over um, in advance, both in a, a sea shipment and then later closer uh, via air. So we didn't have to take everything with us on the plane. Did you ship equipment ahead of time? Shipped as much as we could, but with set with because basically the equipment would be gone for like six months. We couldn't, you know, and we had three photographers going. Unfortunately, we couldn't ship as much equipment over as we would have liked to. Okay. So we shipped like a lot of just like spare batteries and cables and you know just little odds and end type things that you can part with with that long. Okay. So then, how how many cameras did you take over with you? What kind of what was uh, the gear situation? We took over a regular, you know, I took over my camera that's assigned to me, my tripod, um, you know, they, everyone, we, you know, took over their own uh, cameras. I had a GoPro with me. I don't think I used it, though. Um, but, yeah, so each, each photographer, we had our own, you know, standard television camera we use every day. Okay, and how, how well does that pack, and what, do, what does airport security <laughs> do to you? <laughs> it doesn't pack well. Um, we, we carry a mine. Um, we have, you know, cases that we can, you know, check tripods and battery charges. We have to carry the batteries on, though, too, because those, those are lithium-ion. Oh, okay. We have to carry all of our batteries, which each battery weighs, I don't know, when you put five of them together, it weighs a ton. <laughs> We're schlepping them through an airport. And, uh, you know, we have to carry the camera on. Um, and, of course, you have two carry-ons, so one the camera, and then you have a bag with batteries and any personal items, and then everything else gets checked. So you're saying so, you did a lot of laundry. Track, like, you did a lot what? of laundry while you were there. Yeah, I mean, I, that, there actually was a laundry facility set up in the media, um, in the media housing. So um, we knew that in advance. So, so you could you pack know, lightly, clothes, clothes, and then you know do wash a few times and 
not have massive amounts wow. of suitcases. Wow. So did you get questioned a lot? We've, we've talked to some of the athletes and we, we talked to a loser that would, would say the luge was a snowboard just because that would eliminate a lot of questioning. <laughs> And, and trying to get down <laughs> yeah. um, no, I mean, I've traveled a few times and yeah, just it's, they might go through it a little bit closer, especially like the carry on uh, the bag with all the batteries in it. Mm-hmm. The camera pretty much looks like a camera. So I don't feel like I, it, it, you know, maybe it took a few minutes longer than if I was just traveling for, for pleasure. Oh, well, uh, that's not and then, you know, for, you know, customs wise, we had forms that we filled out with every little piece of gear down to the cable, down to the the battery that we had in our check luggage and because we were so detailed it just made going through customs you know that much easier basically we're proving we're taking all this equipment into the country and taking it out with us so it's not like you know the, you're leaving it's more like when you're leaving the country it's like oh this camel looks kind of like new and unscratched up did you buy it here mm-hmm. so just you know it, it didn't have any problems any hassles uh the big the biggest hassle was actually getting that film that form filled out in advance and and process than it was you know traveling with the gear so interesting the biggest problem is dealing with tons of cases and luggage and you know at the airport that's that was really the biggest hurdle of traveling with that much equipment so then you took a bus from seoul to pyeongchang yeah they had a private bus waiting for us so we got all of our stuff met an nbc organizer in the airport loaded in the bus they drove us to uh to our housing did you know what kind of stories you were going to do when you got there? Did you have a, a, a set list? We Well, we didn't have a set list. Um, we obviously knew which athletes were for New England. Um, we had done some preview stories. Um, Audrey Assistio, one of our reporters, went to uh, Lake Placid one weekend for the luge, made good connections with Chris Mazder, who, lucky for us, won the silver medal. Yeah. So yeah, he turned into some good stories. Um, yeah, we had done, we'd gone to the World Cup in, uh, right after Thanksgiving at Killington, made great connections with the U.S. ski team, the coaches, Michaela Schifrin. Um, so they kind of, they knew who we were. You make all those pre-Olympic, I mean, you're doing stories as well, but just making the connections makes your time over there easier. So, you know, we knew the, who the athletes were. Um, a lot of what we were focusing on were like the human interest stories. We weren't so much covering... You know, so and you know, this country won gold. This country won silver. This country won bronze. It was who's at the Olympics? What's the flavor of the Olympics? You know, you know, following athletes. You know, talking to their parents who may have gone over there. You know, th- those types of uh, those types of stories. So then, what what kind of flavor did you experience that maybe you didn't expect to have going in? I don't want to say I knew what they'd be. I kind of you know I, I kind of had an idea. Even even some favorite stories that you did, or or athletes that you got to tell their stories um, that you that really struck you. The one was a, there was a snowboarder a snowboard cross. There was a there was an <laughs> athlete from Songish, Jonathan Cheever. Oh yeah, um, okay. Who has a plumbing license? You know, that's his backup if snowboarding doesn't work. Um, he was just super chill. And then and you know, let me go off on a tangent. Before the games, you know, before the opening ceremonies, we were over there. A lot of press conferences happen. And you get to talk to these athletes and, you know, usually we're talking to, you know, New England Patriots, Red Sox, professional sports, a lot more control, you know, behind, you know, big, you know, communication departments. These athletes were just, I mean, it was great to be able to talk to them. They loved talking to us as well. And they wanted to share their story both personally and also like maybe 
um, like an athlete, like a like loser. Loser's not isn't the most popular sport around. You know, really get the story out to help grow the sport, and it was just really almost an honor to be able to tell their story and to meet them. And you know, they just love love chatting with us and and spending time. So that was that was that was maybe one of the cool things was was just the that aspect of it was the athletes. Then what what were your expectations for what you had to produce while you were there? Did you have a daily story you had to find or or what did you have to file? Well, luckily we had, because it was, th- we basically divided up into three crews and then we had a, a field producer kind of organizing. I worked with JC Monahan a lot. Uh, she's one of our anchors at the station. Uh, and so we hit at like 7 p.m. and 11 p.m. Brian Chapman, who was there, he's the morning report, anchor reporter, so he would hit during the, the morning shows, and then Audrey Assisio would hit in the evening shows, 4, 5, and 6. So we got to divide up the, the live responsibilities a little bit, which, which, helped, which helped a lot avoid burnout because they're, they're long days. It's 12, 13, 14 hours average. So, you know, we, we just try to work smart. We try to like, okay, who's, you know, whose event is this day? You know, if there wasn't any event going on, is there some sort of um, flavor story? We did pieces about some of the sculptures that were in the Olympic Park area. We did one about curling, you know, kind of what's the buzz, what's all about curling. Uh, pin trading is a huge Olympic thing, uh, which I knew known from Salt Lake. And I was, I, I brought tons of pins over in advance and I'm trading left and right. And people look at me like, what is this? You know, I'm like, hey, trust me. And so we did a pin trading story. That's probably one of my favorites. So uh, and, uh, just just an aside, what do you collect? I I like focusing on the media pins. So from okay. the other broadcasters around the station, uh, world. And also the um, something I got into this Olympics was the team, the Team Canada, or Team Great Britain, um, the athlete ones. I have some of the ones from like the U.S. freestyle team, the U.S. downhill team. And I actually was one of the press conferences and I saw – one of the freestyle skiers had a bunch of pins, you know, all the freestyle ones. I'm like, hey, do you have any freestyle pins you want to trade? And I had a bunch of NBC ones with me. He's like, oh, yeah, you're my first pin trade. He was all, you know, excited and happy. (laughs) We have people we can introduce you to, Sean. (laughs) I'm very protective of of what I collect. For me, that's, you know, that's almost my souvenir. Like, you know. Did they give you a bunch of pins beforehand? They gave us a couple, um, but just knowing what I wanted to do with pin trading and, you know, from, from my experience in Salt Lake, I bought about 30 pins myself then in addition to, like, they gave about a handful of them in advance. But then one of the organizers there had more NBC pins that throughout the Olympics kept hang, handing them out. So I probably ended up trading about 50, 50 to 60 pins. That's not a bad collection to get. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a favorite one that you that you got? You know, it might be that freestyle pin, the, the U.S. freestyle team, okay. just because the, the athlete was so amped to make his first pin trade, and <laughs> and uh, it's one of the few like few U.S. like um, I have the U.S. Olympic team one, but then they were like specific like you know freestyle team or figure skating. So it was one of the few like sports specific ones I got, and so I'd probably say that might be one of the favorites. Nice. Okay, nice. so without naming names, or you can name names. I I, I won't. <laughs> problem that you had with athletes in terms of getting stories or people who are just like we're not talking to you i'm actually gonna say none okay really nice yeah even, even the ones i mean um you know some of the higher profile ones like michaela Schiffman and Lindsay vaughn were you know you may have had to go through someone but they were so open talking to us after their events 
making you know making time and answering our questions. And so I I can't say anyone. Everyone was amazing to talk to and gave you know gave us the time. You know the local athletes especially. That is good. That is good to hear. I know in some venues I I think of this particularly in figure skating, but like, did they have like a media holding area where you kind of waited for people and waited for the athletes to come by or how, how was it at the venues? They do at the venues uh, to do interviews um, with athletes is an area called the mix zone, which it's basically a bunch of little narrow stalls that each broadcaster gets a little couple feet wide spot and the athletes walk through there out of out when, you know, when they leave the venue and you know, they can stop. They don't have to stop. We never had anyone blow past us. We actually, someone like, oh, I have to go do this interview down there, but I'll come back and talk to you. And they did. And so that's the only place at the venue you can interact with the athletes. And then outside that, um, a lot of times, uh, and you know, if uh, a U.S. athlete had won or had just finished competing for the games, the Today Show would would have them on. And then we'd be able to kind of stand off the Today Show set. So when they were done appearing on the Today Show, we could do interviews with them in person and have a lot more interaction with them. Um, we actually met uh, Chris Mazder up in the mountains at, at one of the ski areas that was open to talk to him once he won his silver. And, and he was just so cool and chill. And after we're done rolling, he's taking pictures with all of us. We get to hold the silver medal. So yeah, so outside the venue, it's a lot more, you know, open for interaction, but at the venue, there's, there's one specific spot. And that's the same, I mean, at the skiing events, the mix zone is basically right outside the finish line. So you're in the mix zone and you can actually watch the finish. Whereas some things like the hockey or the figure skating, the arena events, you're more like, you know, underneath the stands, you know, back by where like locker rooms would only go. So you would be watching it on monitors? Yeah, if we were in one of those venues. I actually never covered a mix zone in one of the, you know, indoor venues. Everything I just happened to get was an outdoor venue. And how cold was it? It was cold. <laughs> Thank goodness uh, NBC gave us a lot of uh, clothing, including these huge puffy coats that went down to our knees. And thank goodness we had them. How many but layers? It... How many layers? Oh, one, two, three, four, maybe on the top. Yeah. But and then we're here, still trying to the, film. The, 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 yes. Here's the thing, though. Um, for some reason, the Koreans love really, really warm buildings and vehicles. So we'd board the media shuttles, like, all bundled up. And it would be, like, 80 degrees inside there. <laughs> <laughs> but we'd, we'd go inside some, some you know, Tanto building, and it was just sweltering hot. And it's, like, zipping and taking the hats off. And <laughs> But, yeah, we managed... It was only a few times like doing go, going live. I think one of the coldest moments, um, JC and I were up at the uh, cross country venue in the mountains and we were going live on top. So it was about, you know, shipping containers stacked up, which we used for all the commentators to, you know, commentate for the different networks. And we were up on top of, you know, basically a clamor platform, totally exposed. Uh, the flags were sideways, you know. <laughs> and, you know, you have to take your gloves off to change a battery or something like that. And it's like... <laughs> Did you have any equipment failure because of the, the weather? No, no. Luckily, we did not have any. We didn't have any equipment failures. No, I think there was one little mic glitch during a live shot at like the first day, and that was it. So we were very happy that no technical difficulties or equipment malfunctions or breakage happened. So That is amazing. So you had lodging in the part of the, it wasn't, was it? 
in the village per se or next to the village? They had like a media area lodging. Well, there was a, a media lodging village, which basically a God, I, I, like twenty story buildings and about like twenty of them. Brantley built new basically these condos they built that will be occupied by people after the games and the athletes of them had something similar. They were actually a few blocks down the road with like a little I mean this is all brand new construction commercial district with like, you know, like restaurants and some shops and convenience stores. And so we were there and then we had shuttles that took us to wherever we had to get to. Were they like time shuttles or were they like just you walk outside and there's a like no, a bus route? Scheduled it was scheduled scheduled service that it was you know, that usually would go from the media village was basically like a hub transportation center for the media and then go directly to a venue. Oh nice. Or to like the press center. And on a time schedule. So, you know, that it was one, basically the toughest thing about the covering the Olympics is logistics. I've been at NBC, NECN for 12 and a half years. You know, I, I know how to cover news stories. But the big thing is, okay, we have to get to this venue and by this time and, okay, what shuttles are going there? And, oh, getting through the mix zone and getting, you know, you, you know, the mix zone, you have, sometimes you had to get a special armband. So you had to go check in with broadcast managers and make phone calls and, and have everything arranged like that. So, so getting around sometimes can be challenging, especially because where our workspace was was – where the hockey, figure skating, short track, speed skating, and curling were. So we had great access to those venues, but to get in the mountains could, could have been challenging. Um, we did have a driver that we shared amongst, like a van driver that we, you know could sometimes get like point to point with, but we had to all schedule that amongst the NBC stations. So sometimes you got it, sometimes you didn't. So here's the really important question. Okay. Did you get into the shop in the village? Like the, these... Yeah. I did get into the superstore before it had a three-hour line to it. <laughs> I'm not joking about that. And was it as fabulous as it looked on camera? I mean, I got a few things there, but, like, some things, like, I wanted a sticker. I wanted just I anything that said PyeongChang 2018 and the Olympic rings on it to put in my equipment case, and I could not find a sticker. Really? No. I could find boxes of seaweed with the Olympic logo on it. <laughs> or like, you know, <laughs> like, you know the Olympic mascot, Suhu Wong? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Anything. Like, so the seaweed had like Suhu Wong's picture on it. Like, there'd be like a box of like, uh, like of tea bags with Suhu Wong's picture on it, but I couldn't get a sticker. <laughs> so, or like get like a commemorative book about the Olympics, even if it was in Korean. <laughs> That's really uh -huh. interesting. But it was so. I picked up. I picked up a, a Suhu Wong um, stuffed uh, animal for my daughter. I picked up a few, uh, a few of the hats for some people as thank yous. Um, I actually didn't give myself anything because I had so much NBC gear that I was like, okay, I have enough. And also, space in the bag was at a premium. <laughs> I can imagine. How were the crowds? Because we would see that venues weren't all that full. Yeah, and I, like I went to when I worked in Salt Lake. I, there was a few. Because of the schedule, I was able to pick up tickets, you know, uh, for a few of the events. And I remember going up to um, the women's combined downhill, ticketed, ticketed person. I'd say the stands were, they were full. I mean, I think you probably could have gotten a walk-up ticket, but you won't see many empty spaces. And we were at the combined women's downhill, and it was empty. There was a lot of, lot of empty seats. Wow. A lot of, a lot of the events. There was a few times like on the week, like there was a one weekend that the weather was just perfect like it warmed up it wasn't windy and even like down the, the coastal area was packed with people and so i i don't i'm trying to think 
I think I was at one of the venues. It was a little bit more, a little fuller at one of the outdoor venues that I was at that I saw. But a lot of the times, the more of the outdoor venues that I saw that were a lot of um, empty seats. Um, the speed skating, I went there a few nights because we were right there. I could just kind of walk into the media area. Those were full. I think figure skating uh, and short short track especially is a, is a huge uh, Korean sport. Those, I think, were sold out. Curling actually had a pretty good, you know, I'd say pretty full. You could have walked up and bought a ticket, but there was a good crowds at the curling venue. I didn't get into the hockey, but I think there were pretty good crowds there, if not Koreans. But um, the one thing we ran into was a lot of U.S. service members. Oh, okay. Of with course. all the U.S. bases there, there, a lot of them were able to, and with trains and stuff like that, able to... Um, to come down, even if it was for like a day, you know, they try to pick up tickets to something. So we'd run into a lot of service members. I don't know if they were going to the hockey games. Pretty good crowds at the, the venue, the indoor venues. So do you think the outdoor venues was because of the weather or because the mountains were more isolated? I think, I mean, I mean, a lot more isolated. Some of the, some of the venues, at least the ones I got to, were a little bit more isolated than, say, Salt Lake. Um, a little bit harder to get to. I mean, it was some of the time was really cold. So, you know, what do you say? Like, oh, you take the family out and stand in like 10 degree weather. Like, yeah, I don't know if I do that here. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that could play that could have played um, a role. So it was tough, tough to judge what the reason was, but it, it was noticeable. With the media credential, could you get into anything you wanted to or did you have to be covering that? No, we could get into, you, you couldn't get into a few things like um, figure skating. You needed to actually have a separate ticket for that event. And the same thing happened in, in Salt Lake. I actually worked at the figure skating and short track venue in Salt Lake. And even though I was working at that venue on the figure skating nights, I actually had to have a separate ticket. I mean, it said like, you know, broadcaster on it, but I had to have that attached to my credential. Okay. And so the same thing. So I didn't get into any of the figure skating, but like with the curling and the speed skating, you just, you know, show your credential. You can go into the areas which your credentials allows you to get into and and usually watch. I unfortunately didn't get any skiing just because of uh, the logistics getting up there. But I went to some of the speed skating and curling. One of our listeners, uh, listener Claire, wrote in with a question. So okay. did you was it all Olympics all the time or were you able to fit in other things into your schedule? Well, I amazingly got a day off. I was shocked. One day off in a month, right? I wanted. I was, but the thing is, I was mentally going into this saying, "I'm not going to have a day off until I get back on U.S. soil," and just mentally prepping myself for that. So when it came, I was like, "Awesome, great!" And some people had gone into Seoul for the day. It was like a two-hour train ride, but I'm like, ah. and I found out one of the ski areas was open that was easy to get to. Part of the mountain had the, um, I think it was the slalom and giant slalom on it, but it was kind of like a separate part of the mountain that didn't really, and, and so the, the main base area wasn't affected at all by the security and the closing down. So I actually went skiing. Nice. How, how were the hills? It reminded me of New England okay. in terms of the size of the, the size of the hills were very much the size of what you'd see in New England. And uh, I'd say the snow conditions were very similar too. It, we could definitely tell it was part man-made, part natural. I mean, off the trails, it was pretty bare. But because it had been so cold, you didn't have the melting and refreezing and melting and refreezing, which is what you get in the New England with the ice. So the snow was actually really good. <laughs> and nobody was on the slope. So it was just a beautiful, and a beautiful sunny day. And so it was, it was a really enjoyable respite from, from the Olympics for a little bit. 
So to take a break from the Winter Olympics, even though I go skiing, from I could see like I could see like the luge track out in the distance. I could see the ski jumping hill. Half the mountain closed because of Olympics. So you and at the bottom, at the bottom, some of the um, countries have hospitality houses. Like the USA house was there. Switzerland had a house. Sweden had a house there. So I actually went and hung out at the uh, Swiss house after my day of skiing. Oh, um, that's not bad. I, yeah. Did you get to Holland House? I didn't. I heard that was a good time. I've, I've, I've heard a lot about Holland House. <laughs> we did get to the Austria House. We actually did a story one day about the country houses. Um, we went to the Austria House where they had snow volleyball, which I guess is a thing in Austria. It wasn't just like, let's set up a volleyball net in the snow because when people drink, they want to do something. I guess snow volleyball is a thing. And also they had a, um, like a little like sledding jump that like dropped you into like this huge airbag. So you'd come down this little hill, go off a ramp and then drop in the airbag. So of course we had to do it and filmed it. So yeah, so we did the Austria house and the Swiss house and the, and the Swedish house for the story. Did not get to, some of them were very private. The USA house was very private also because it was very small. Uh, Germany, I think, had a very private house, but there was some like Holland house, which was like the place to party at night. But just like the thought of like getting in a cab and going there at the end of the day, I was like, ah, I'm going to go to sleep. Right. Yeah, because you do have 12, 14 hour days exactly. lugging equipment and trying to yeah. stay warm. Yeah, basically, I, I look at my uh, my phone kept track of my, you know, steps and floors climbed. I think the longest day, I think I like walked like 11 miles and climbed like 13 flights of steps. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Pulling a cart of television equipment. <laughs> So do you wish you had done more training ahead of time? Like, was it, was it physically challenging? You kind of did what you, I mean, that, you know, it's a, it's a physically demanding job to begin with. So it just a little more walking. Luckily there wasn't a huge altitude to deal with. Like you might get in Salt Lake, but uh, I mean, just a lot of lugging around and <laughs> a lot of, a lot of walking. First couple of days you were a little tired, but then it, then you kind of got it, got the groove. How was the food? The food, the little bit of Korean food I had, both on the airplane and, and then the few times I was able to, to escape the Olympic bubble, um, was delicious. And the food that we had, NBC had catered it. They bought over food. It was very American. It was it was it was tasty and healthy and gave you the energy to keep going. Got a little repetitive after a while. <laughs> after about five or six days, the meal started repeating. The cool thing was though at breakfast, as we breakfast at the Media Village before before starting our day is like they had dumplings and like you get like rice and just not your normal breakfast items. So. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> it, was, it was always, I'm like, I was like obsessed with having dumplings with breakfast. It was, it was great. <laughs> Do you have a favorite moment? Uh, I'd have to say one of them was, I was able, we were, you know, we were able to finish early for the day. I got over to the men's gold medal curling match. Oh, get out of town. And, and that was such and a I knew, good And I knew match. about curling. Like, we, early on in the games, like, we went one evening because curling basically happens 24-7 at the right. Olympics. And so after we were finished for the day, we, we all walked down to the curling venue and, and the, the rest of the crew, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, we're sitting there in a group in the media section, and I'm, like, just explaining the game of curling to them. And they're like, how do you know this? <laughs> So How I, I don't I knew, they know it. I knew, I knew the strategy and I knew kind of like what was going on. So all of a sudden, like I'm counting the stones that the U.S. had in the end, and I'm like, "Wait a second, like, like you don't, you don't get five points." In, no, right? <laughs> that 
was amazing. And so, and so I'm like, it, it was, so that was, I'd probably say one of the, the coolest, coolest moments of, of my time there that, you know, to, to be in that arena and uh, witness that. That was, that was amazing. And I, it was cool on our end, I would say to watch curling kind of sweep, not just the U.S., but also Korea, because they seem to get so excited about uh, the Korean women's team and yeah. cheering them they're, on. They're really good. I just have to say the Korean fans were amazing. They just love cheering. They just love being there. They cheer for everybody. They just they just loved it. It was great. How, how did this experience compare with your one in Salt Lake City? Because it is probably completely different and it was even size different. of games. Many, many ways. I was in college. I took a semester off. It was just myself. I went out there for three and a half months. Oh no, three months. I so went over there. Did for... you? What was your role over there? Well, they actually do hire college students, but they were literally only advertising the Utah universities because they weren't—they were paying, but they weren't providing housing. But I was determined. I found a couch to crash on, and I would actually turn it into uh, a spare bedroom at a house. Uh, and I, so I worked in the commentary. I got selected to work in the commentary positions, which we basically were in charge of. Um, all the different commentators from the world, making sure their signal was getting back to the main press center and the International Broadcast Center. Yeah, just making sure everything was working. If it didn't, we fixed it, and they got back on the air. And I lucked out and was at the short track speed skating during the reign of Apollo Ono. And it was also the figure skating with the controversy with the Canadian pairs. Yes. So that was pretty, that was, especially being a college student, like, you know, just being like you know my first real job in tv and then to be there for some of those moments but the one thing i did notice that was different in salt lake you know the the sponsors galore um it's salt lake there were more like small like track the trailer those are like tents that were set up for the sponsors whereas in korea like they were like there were some buildings like samsung had a two-story building as their sponsor venue down in the coast wow so the, the 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 size of the sponsor, the sponsor pavilions, was noticeably different in Korea. Were there fewer sponsors um, in Korea? Would you say it was tough to tell, numbers wise. But I just know like, and it wasn't just Samsung. Like um like Coca Cola had a huge pavilion, and what were some of the other ones? Like North, it just they were just a lot bigger and more like structures versus just like you know, the tents that they can set up for long periods of time or track the trailers we go through and they have displays set up. I mean, you, you know, that's like the you know, Winter Olympics obviously on a smaller scale than, than summer games. I'd say the venues, number, you know, size of the venues was, you know, comparable. How was security at Pyeongchang? I never felt unsafe, mm-hmm. very safe. Um, we go, you know, we had special separate, um, you know, they had separate entrances for the media and and credentialed people like that. So I don't know what the general public security was like. Uh, so, you know, it was pretty much mag and bag. So go through the mag, you know, put all your equipment through the x-ray, you know, go through the magnetometer, collect everything at the other end. So what's next? Are you going to try to get to a Summer Olympics now? I'd like to. I think hopefully uh, my management wants to send me back to another Olympics. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to hit a Summer Games, though, because those fall on presidential election years. Oh. And so... Oh. So I also don't think we'll send seven people to another Olympics in the future. Maybe we will. I don't know. You know, I'm like, if I can do a winter games every four years, I'll consider myself very fortunate and happy. Cool. Well, Sean, thank you so much for taking thank you. time. You're welcome. With us. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but I'm a little jelly.
even oh, if yes. it was 12 14 hour days i'm so jelly i i yeah i'm very jealous because that credential got him into all the events never mind just you know actually doing a job there but he could just right go see, go see the garlic girls and go see gold medal oh my gosh getting in to see that gold, gold medal, medal curling game <gasps> oh my gosh fantastic and just so cool i mean it's fun to get an assignment like that when you're really into the what it is right the event <laughs> what it is. getting to walk around getting to see all the different houses that was really exciting you want me to say austria house yeah <laughs> i do <laughs> okay, so that Honestly, the whole time he was talking about the different houses, I was trying so hard not to say Austria house. <laughs> but it's cool because, you know, some of the things he brought up, I remembered like just glimpses of because I do remember the snow volleyball that they talked about from the Austria oh, right, you would house. Have, you would have, the Austria house. You would have seen all the local stories that he was doing. I, I saw some of them. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of cool to have that. What a cool experience. It was. And it's it's nice to hear, again, like Megan said this, and now Sean has said is that the Korean fans just loved the events and just yeah. liked to cheer and cheered for everyone. So that, it sounds like this particular games, there was a lot of love. Yes. And a lot of enthusiasm, which it's nice. That's especially really nice, yes. After Sochi, where it sounds like there wasn't. Yeah, Sochi seemed yeah. weird and hard. But yeah. the only the only bummer about this was having these outdoor events with not many fans. And I right. get that it was cold and people didn't want to go or they didn't really have incentive to go if they didn't like the sports, like they loved the speed skating. Right. But And you could be warm. Yes. And right. Let's be honest. We're going to choose warm <laughs> and lesser loved event. Even. You would not choose biathlon over warmth? No. Except if you gave me a cowbell. Oh, totally. We got cowbells for everybody. Yeah, I might. I might if I could ring the cowbell. Because I know indoors <laughs> the cowbell is a little much. So, yeah, maybe. That would keep me warm. I'd keep working the cowbell. I see. I see. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Sean. Thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, we will keep our fingers crossed that you get to go to Beijing in 2022. Yeah. That's exciting. So... You've got a follow-up for us that you've been working I've got, on. I've got two follow-ups, okay. but let's start with the Russian doping scandal. Um, we got a question from a listener about what's been happening since then. So Russia uh, Olympic Committee um, was kicked out of the IOC. They were reinstated in March after the Games. They couldn't march. Um, and since then, they agreed... So the, the Russian Olympic Committee agreed to pay $15 million to the IOC to reimburse them uh, for the investigation. And this week, the president of the Russian Olympic Committee, Alexander Zhukov, uh, stepped down. And there's going to be new elections on May 29th, and he will not stand for uh, re-election, and he will not be involved. Interesting. So we're going to have a whole new leadership. He's been the uh, president since 2010. So this was oh, his. Wow. Yeah, this was his deal. You know, everything kind of that went around the the Sochi uh, doping scandal was his. So the fact that he's stepping down, I think my instinct is. 
the IOC knew the stepping down was coming. Okay. And which is why they've let them back into the fold so quickly and so easily, despite there being two athletes at Pyeongchang, uh, two Russian athletes that tested positive. So we'll see how this plays out, if it really is going to be a changing of the guard. Right, because then the question is, who is the replacement? Is it going to be somebody with a new attitude, or is it somebody who's just another person on the same level or... You know, right. Is this going to be a FIFA situation where, yes, you changed the leadership, but it was just with his lieutenants. Right. So nothing really changed. So end of May. That's what we're looking at now. Yes. End of May. We will get some more information. The and then the continues. second second Russian story was during uh, Pyeongchang, a listener had asked how unusual it was to have so many skaters with the same coach. Oh, right. Especially the two the two Russian women. Well, this week, Evgenia Medvedeva is leaving the coach that she shared with Z uh, Alina Zagitova. Which I read and about this today. I know. And it is not a very amicable split. <sighs> yes. So Terry Tutbredza, Tutbredza, Tutbredza is the coach. And apparently she found out that Evgenia Medvedeva was leaving her in the press. Ooh. When she heard it announced on TV, at least that's what she said. And she also said that Medvedeva has been whining and childish and used some other rather unpleasant uh, <sighs> statements about her former student. And she had, they have been together since Medvedeva was seven. This has been her only skating coach. Wow. So... Is do you know, yeah. is that normal in Russia? Or is that normal in general? Because I do know there have been splits, but it seems like it's not in, rare, but in like they've been together a very long time or they're Tanya Harding. Right. It's There are two schools. In Russia, you tend, at least historically, once you get with that level of coach, which is usually very, very young, you are with the same coach. In the U.S. and Canada, there are kind of a class of coaches, and you kind of move into that class in your early teens. Okay. So there have been a few coaches, like Scott Hamilton, for example, and Brian Boitano, stayed with the same coach that each had from a very, very young age, and that was unusual. But in Russia, it's not. Okay. So the fact that she's left her coach and is going, she's moving to Canada, She's going to Brian Orser, who was He's like the coach. a man with the golden touch, the coach with the he golden is. touch, man. He was the uh, coach for uh, Yuzuru Hanyu and Javier Fernandez, gold, mm -hmm. silver, and men's, and my queen, Yuna Kim, right. former gold and silver medalist. For Russian, skate, for Russian single skaters to leave is a very big deal. So this is... A, a definitely irreconcilable differences divorce. Wow. Where Yevgenia felt that the coach chose Zagitova over her. her. Yeah. And that's, that's... got to be very hard, a, a, a really tough balancing act because as a coach, you should want both of them to do well equally and just the chips fall where they may. You know, somebody may have a better day than another one, but. You know, you can't play favorites. 
supposedly. Well, I don't know. She put Zagitova as a 15 year old in the senior ranks. Right. And made her a jumping machine and kind of, you know, you talked about how she geared her whole program, mm -hmm. you know, to just focus on the jumps, just game the system and kind of left Medvedeva off on her own. So I'm not surprised by it from a skating perspective, mm -hmm. but it's, I feel bad from the human side of it. You know, because yeah. these are kids. I mean, Medvedeva's all of 18. She's a kid. Right. So I'm hoping knowing the way Brian Orser has coached, I think this will be really good for her as a human being. I, I think so. it'll be great for her as a skater. Right, but right. But I think it'll even be better for her as a, as a person. So I hope for both of them not being together in the same rank will actually be a much better situation you know because i worry about them as teenage girls right they're from the right. skaters right do but yes yeah, that'll be exciting to see what brian orser can do you with know, her do you think brian orser does other coaching besides figure skating you know like coaching that i can hire him to do for me well i know he does teach an old people skating class does he really he does he does like a scene like and i'm, I'm talking like even older than us like <laughs> We're not old. Well, <laughs> we're ageless, right? That's but right. But I mean, like, like the senior citizens come and he does a clinic with them. Oh and that's something that I've read. They, they did an interview with him and he was doing this. And apparently he does this regularly at his rink to sort of keep him in touch with the community. That is awesome. So oh, I might be able to sign up for a skating lesson if maybe if we could oh man. call him be like could we do a skating lesson with oh my god could we do a skating lesson i would cry <laughs> i i would cry. i would probably cry if like, i met allison, him allison <laughs> um crossovers would... are not that painful you don't have to cry no i'm skating with brian orser <laughs> I know. I probably would. I mean, that that would probably get me a little starstruck because I just I loved him as a skater and I love oh, him yeah. even more as what he's done as a coach. He's just the skaters that he has produced are just beautiful skaters and also different. So, you know, he's respecting them as individuals mm -hmm. and they seem to really care about each other. Right. Like the relationship between Javier Fernandez and Yuzuru Hanyu seemed so wonderful and so different than, say, Medvedeva and Zagitova, who also share a coach, who also were competing for the same medals. Right. And yet, I mean, and I put that to, to Brian Orser and what he's done at his rank. So, oh, my God, that would be my best day ever. <laughs> we will put that on the list. Let's Let's, you know, let's just put it out there in the universe and see what happens. Oh, my God, I'd be skating on the same rink as Unikim. <gasps> <laughs> We're going to make this happen. Oh, my God. Somehow, some way, we will make this happen. <laughs> just going to put that out in the put universe. That. On that note, we got some work to do, so we will yeah. wrap up the show for Call It A Day. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again, Sean, for being on the show. And if you have any suggestions for 
what we should do for uh, looking at some summer sports. We've got a little list going, so we're working on that. And But we also always want to hear what you'd like to see next. So hit us up on Twitter at Olimfever or Insta, which is Allison Olimfever. That's Allison with one L. And an I. And, oh, yeah, that's right. A-L-I-S-O-N. And also on our Facebook page. And uh, we will be back here next week with more Olympic stories. So until then, thanks again for listening and keep the flame alive. Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M-Fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Olympfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Let's, you know, let's just put it out there in the universe and see what happens.